on the fourth tradition, followed by our information break. Uh, and then our main speaker who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10 minute speaker to share on the fifth tradition is Duncan. Hello, my name's Duncan and I am an alcoholic. Um, and uh, that's the good news today. Um, there was a time in my life I didn't know what was wrong with me. And it wasn't until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that I found out I was suffering from a threefold disease. It affects me mentally, physically, and spiritually. I learned that this uh, illness, this malady, is progressive in nature. Over any considerable time, it gets worse, never better. And then it's potentially fatal. And I say it's the good news because I was promised if I was willing to do a few certain definite simple things, I could have a life better than the best that I've ever known. And that's been my experience. The exact extent that I apply myself to the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is to the exact extent I'm relieved of a seemingly hopeless state of my body. For that, I am incredibly grateful. You know, um, I was just, everybody, as everybody was, uh, as we were being introduced and the steps we read, my children upstairs screaming. And I'm telling my wife to quiet everybody down. And I'm doing my best to being like, you know, um, not in the shadows and have decent lighting and be considerate. And I got my jacket and tie on, suit up and show up. And these are all things I never could do before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. This roof, this room that I'm in, wouldn't have it. Definitely wouldn't be married. Children were out of the question. I didn't have a bank account. What bank account I did have it was just constantly, you know, I was constantly drawing from whenever I had any money. I was um, going insane. I was really just drinking, really just to maintain my sanity. Um, I slept with a bottle next to my bed. Um, I'd wake up with night terrors. I had, that, I had to have the fan going and the, the television on. And the reason why I say that is because I just like want to set the stage as to like this tradition, the fifth tradition, which I'm going to read the long form uh, with the group's permission. Um, each Alcoholics Anonymous group ought to be a spiritual entity having but one primary purpose, that of carrying its message to the alcoholics still suffers. That's it. That's all we do in AA. We do nothing else except help other alcoholics. When I came to the, uh, the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I had no idea what AA was. Thank goodness nobody was advertising this thing. There was nobody selling AA. There was no spokesperson for AA. I came into AA with a head full of weird ideas and so many opinions. I was like choking myself with them. And um, I came into AA and all I heard was people talk about this hope. And they told my story. I thought I was the only one that drank the way I did. If anybody had been talking about anything else other than alcohol, I might not have stayed. I was looking for any excuse not to do or to separate myself, because I already felt so horribly separated from my fellow man. And if you're new and you're out there and you're scared, welcome, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's kind of like a strange format. Normally we meet in a, in a room, but um, we're here for you. Um, we could, there's a way to get in touch with us individually, get a sponsor, get this, get a hold of the steps. Um, you can get sober. This too shall pass. Um, it will. Um, I didn't think I was able to re regain my sanity again. Um, I detoxed in AA, and all anybody wanted from me was to help me. That was it. That was the fifth tradition at work. 
And what they got out of it was they themselves stayed sober. And I was like, huh, the only, the reason why you're picking me up every night and buying me food and taking me to meetings is because this is how you're staying away from the drinking. At that time, I sponsored 26 years in here. Incredible story. And um, it made an impact. It made me able to listen to the 12th step because the fifth tradition really is connected to the 12th step as having had a spiritual awakening or experience as a result of these steps we carry this message the message of the 12 steps and it's possible to regain your sanity and recover from alcohols to the next sick and suffering alcoholic and to practice these principles in all our affairs and i practice the principles i learned in alcoholics anonymous and i have the life that's kind of like in a little box around you and i'm able to string a couple sentences together without going out of my mind without a drink next to me except for bottled seltzer and that was a miracle. That's all I wanted. That's all I wanted. That's how AA affected me when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. It allowed me just that the idea that that's all anybody wanted for me, and that I could just sit here and like I didn't even have to put money in the basket. I could consider myself a member or not, and just come to the meetings. There was no pledge that I had to do, or you know, there's no contract that I had to sign that nobody could kick me out of AA. That all I could just sit here and listen, maybe not drink, just for one day. And I would hear these stories. I'd hear people share their 12-step experiences where they would they were feeling exactly as insane as I felt at that one moment. And they got better. And they reconstructed their lives. And by doing that, I was willing to try those good those steps that which scared me. Like, I don't know if I could believe in God. I don't know. If I could do that ninth step or, and everybody was like, buddy, all you got to do is just remain willing right now. You're not on that step. You just put your feet right where our feet were. And you're going to be all right. We all did this work. You just do what we did and you'll get what we got. And, um, and that was really the essence of the fifth tradition, how it impacted me as a newcomer that nobody, and it says it in the, in the literature. I'm like, I'm doing all this re- research. It's wonderful. There's so much great history in Alcoholics Anonymous. But Bill just n- keeps it all so simple. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, I asked my sponsor, who's like been sober longer than Bill, practically. Um, and he, uh, he just says this, they mean what they say they mean. You know, the most important tradition, the first tradition, only took two and a half pages of this uh, of the book that is written. And it's important that I keep this simple because this is how I live my life as well, is, is how I live this tradition, is that I have a primary purpose in my life. If I do not put Alcoholics Anonymous first and my willingness to help another alcoholic, I will lose everything. I will pick up a drink again. I will probably, out of my experience, because I goofed around in this program, the good news is you don't have to be perfect here. I get nipped in the butt, you know, um, and I have to get back on the beam. But the way I keep this life and my sanity is by putting AA and my primary purpose first. That's how like, I live this. And um, by doing that, it's just like one day at a time, I just like the most important bit of information I have for myself is that I'm an alcoholic and I have to stay sober. And that involves 
helping another alcoholic. It doesn't involve me going to a meeting and taking from AA. It means me going to a meeting that when I go to a meeting, my job when I'm at a meeting is to find the person that looks the way I might be feeling in that moment and go and ask them how, I, how they're doing. And by doing that, I'm alleviated of me. Um, and um, this acute sense of selfishness, right? So that I suffer, that, that I can suffer from. But Alcoholics Anonymous has alleviated me of by having, by working the steps. And I'm supposed to be looking at this time. I don't know where I am in the time here. Five minutes left. Uh, that might have been two minutes ago. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I'll try to look at my, my, uh, my, uh, my, my phone. Um, but, you know, this tradition was also created like I easily qualify, like why this tradition was created. I easily qualify for a bunch of other programs. I was doing a bunch of crazy stuff when I was out there. I was doing a bunch of other substances that allowed me to drink longer. You know, um, it got me in a whole lot of different kind of trouble. But I'm an alcoholic primarily and identify when I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous, I identify myself as an alcoholic. Um, it was the first thing I picked up was the last thing I put down. And, um, you know, actually I picked up again, this is my second round in AA. It was like, it was that other stuff. It was that girlfriend I had, I just got to stay away from them. Be careful, stay away from that. Those controlled illegal substances. You know, everybody knows those are addictive. You can't do those. And in no time I was drinking again after all the hell that I'd been through. So, um, um, you know, the traditions were created. They're not rules or laws. You know, you could break them. The only person that suffers as a result of breaking them is me. Um, they are the, they are the, um, the material, the, all the 12 traditions of the material, this life raft that everybody in AA sits in, that we all float on in this, you know, in this dangerous sea of alcoholism. And, um, and Bill wrote these traditions to ensure that, you know, that room was open for me and whoever else is out there that uh, that needs help. Um, and also that, um, you know, I think that's it. I think that's it for me. I'm going to shut up right there. But I want to thank Rich for asking me to speak. And I want to thank all of you for being here tonight. Um, thank you. And our second 10-minute speaker is Allie. Hi, everyone. I'm Allie, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, thank you so much, Duncan, for your share. I, too, uh, the last time I spoke on Zoom, my three-year-old was running around yelling, I have to poop. So um, I sent him outside with my uh, partner so that doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you, Deborah. I hope I said that right, for asking me to share. It's always an honor and a privilege to speak at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I never would have thought I would have said that. Um, my sobriety date is February 15th, 2006. I have a home group. It is the Old Timers Group in Oakland, California. And I have a sponsor who I work with regularly. You know, now that those are all out of the way, I have 10 minutes, so I'm going to talk really quickly. Um, and I'm really happy to be at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and at the Atlantic Group. I've always wanted to visit you guys, and I haven't made it. So the next time I'm in New York, I will. Um, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Um, I come from a really great family. I'm an only child. My parents aren't alcoholics. Um, I don't know what made me different. Um, I don't know why I ended up being an alcoholic, but I can tell you that the way I drink is abnormally different from my fellows. And um, I can tell you that when I was younger, I felt really uncomfortable. 
You know, I was a little bit of a chunkier kid and I got made fun of a lot of, and um, I never really felt like I fit in. I always wanted more of everything. My, I would say I wanted, you know, these Barbies and um, my mom would get them for me. And um, I always wanted more and what my friends had. And so it was never enough. I never had enough Barbies. I never had enough toys. It was never enough at a very young age. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to a private school for the majority of my life. And, um, you know, I had gone to a religious school. So um, I had religion kind of shoved down my throat from a very early age. And um, by the time I hit fifth grade, I wanted nothing to do with religion. And so I went to a school that was sixth through 12th grade. Um, and let me tell you, sixth through 12th grade, that's great um, for a budding alcoholic because um, by the time I was in seventh grade, I could party with the seniors. And uh, that's exactly what I did. You know, I took my uh, first first drink at uh, around 12 or 13. Had I known I was going to end up in Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe I would have remembered that drink. Maybe that's why I ended up here. I don't remember it, uh, but I do remember how I felt. And I felt finally at ease. I felt like I was part of the party. And I, boy, let me tell you, I could sure drink a lot. I loved vodka. I love the taste of it. I love everything about it. And I could drink a ton of it. Like I would drink a bottle of vodka and want more. And my friends would be on the floor throwing up on the ground at 12 and 13. And I'd be talking to their parents, telling them, oh, we're fine. We had so much fun. We went to the movies, went to this, you know, and, and that's how it was. And, um, you know, by the time I was 13, I picked up a lovely uh, daily habit that enabled me to do my homework and stay up all night and drink a lot more. And so it was perfect. And um, I had this perfect little mixture. And so by the time I hit high school, I um, didn't really like school. It wasn't conducive to my partying. So I went to seven different high schools. Um, it wasn't because I got kicked out of any, it wasn't because I was a bad student. I was actually a really good student. I played varsity soccer, varsity volleyball. I was actually really, really great at these things, but schools wanted me to do things like show up at 8 AM, um, and, and stay the whole day. And, um, you know, that wasn't conducive to my partying. I wanted to stay up all night and, you know, do all these different things. So I switched schools based on what I heard I could party better at. So there was continuation schools. There was um, a high school at a college, which was great. That started at noon. Um, and it was only three days a week. So that was like the best school ever. That was probably the best one. And, um, you know, it, that's how I picked my schools. And I would talk my, my parents into it. And it, it worked out really well. And then I, I started to do a lot of things I never thought I would do. And I started to behave uh, in ways that I never thought I would behave. And I started hanging around in places like Highland Park. And if anyone is familiar with uh, Los Angeles, uh, Highland Park used to not be the best neighborhood to be in at the avenues. Um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the nicest neighborhood. Now it's kind of uh, turned over a little bit and it's, uh, it's gentrified a little bit. But back then it wasn't. And I used to hang out in places like that with people that I shouldn't be around at 17 wearing short shorts and tight tops and running around like a crazy little teen, uh, drunk and on lots of other things. And by the time I was 17, I had something happen to me that no woman should ever have to go through. And that just excelled all my drinking and using. And um, I had a, a lovely boyfriend who liked to, um, I had a boyfriend at the time who was, okay, five minutes. I had a boyfriend at the time who liked to, who uh, made drugs. And uh, so he, uh, 
he was my partner in crime and um, I just went downhill from there. And I was so mad and so angry and um, I would do things like take my parents' cars because I thought they were all mine and I would take them in the middle of the night. And then I would show up a week later, passed out on the couch and my parents would be asking me where the car was and I would say, I have absolutely no idea. And um, I would destroy everything in their house and I would put my parents through hell and I was their only child and it was absolutely horrible. And I had gotten a new boyfriend. Um, I'm going to speed up a little quickly because I need to get sober. Uh, I had gotten a new boyfriend, and uh, he we got in an all-night fight, and uh, he took everything I had and broke my cell phone. And I um, had to call my parents to bail me out, and my dad picked up the phone. And um, he wouldn't give it to my mom, and it was like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and I had to call him from a pay phone. And um, he wouldn't give her the phone, and he picked me up at five o'clock in the morning on the side of the street and I was in short shorts and a tight top and the look on that man's face was the most incomprehensible demoralization I've ever had in my entire life and I wanted to do anything to not live the life I was living anymore and um that was when I was 18 years old and um sorry <laughs> my nose is running a little bit and um you know, I started a stent in rehabs. I went to three different rehabs. And, um, you know, I, all I can say is that I thought I had a problem with other things. And I didn't think I was an alcoholic because I was binge drink on the weekends. And um, I would come back and raise my hand as a newcomer. And I did that for at least six months. And, um, you know, the one thing that the rehabs uh, introduced me to was Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm forever grateful that I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd love to tell you that I came in here like, woo, yay, I'm going to do everything they tell me to. I was a teenager. I'd never lived life on life's terms. I had never done anything that you do in regular life sober. Um, and so there was a lot of work I had to be that had to be done. Um, you know, I, I had to start doing a living amends at the very beginning because I was living with my parents. I was living with the people that I destroyed their lives the most. My dad had taken down all the photos in his office of me and wanted absolutely nothing to do with me by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And he wouldn't speak of me. Someone would ask him about me and he would, he would just ignore the subject and, and start talking about something else. And um, I had to start you know, showing them that I was changing and I had to do a living amends right from the get-go. I had to ask them if they needed me to help do things like clean up the kitchen, vacuum, take the garbage out. You know, these normal everyday life things that when you're an alcoholic of my type, you have absolutely no idea how to do. I broke the vacuum the first time I ever used it. You know, these are the things that I, I would do. And, um, you know, I, I had to start doing things to start rebuilding trust with my family. My mom um, didn't trust me because I would steal her cars because I didn't think it was stealing, but I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and they told me I was stealing their cars. And so I would have to call my mom when I left the house, when I got to a meeting, then when I was leaving the meeting to get home to borrow one of her cars because they were mine. I didn't pay for them. And that was taught to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I, I was very thankful um, by the time I had uh, like six months sober. My first six months, I didn't want to sponsor. I was like, forget it. But I went to tons of meetings went to three meetings a day. By the time I was six months sober, I was in so much pain that I um, asked an old timer that used to sit next to me so people wouldn't come and, and try and hit on me. He used to sit right next to me and I asked him for help and he introduced me to his wife and I'm forever grateful for her. That, that gentleman has since passed away um, from this disease. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful for her. She got my head into the book and got me into the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've been able to do tremendous things in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got sober at um, 19. And, um, you know, I am forever grateful that I have a God of my own understanding. 
um, that I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I was able to repair relationships. I uh, was able to take care of my grandmother for the last four years of her life at 90 years old. And that was the most amazing, incredible experience of my entire life because I would have never been able to do that had I been drunk or on the streets because I wanted nothing to do with her and I wanted nothing to do with my family. And I can tell you today that I have an amazing life. I uh, graduated from high school. I went to college and I've been in the same career since my first job getting sober. And I am forever grateful. And it's all because of Alcoholics Anonymous, people in these rooms reaching their hand out to me and welcoming me and having a God of my own understanding that puts me in the middle of this herd in between me and the door and that next string. So um, I think my minute is up and thank you so much. Hi, it's Tom. Hi everybody, my name is Tom, I'm an alcoholic. Thank you Rich for uh, asking me to speak. Always a privilege to speak at AG and uh, there's a lot of people here I've known for a very long time, uh, over 20 years, people that uh, I get to see now regularly. Uh, normally, I don't want to drive to Manhattan. I live in Westchester. But these Zoom meetings make it all real easy. Um, I'd like to start by saying I believe the purpose of these meetings are for the 15 people who identified themselves as in their first 90 days. Uh, I believe my job is to say something that might encourage you to come to another meeting. Okay, so let's get started here. A little bit about alcoholism, which I get, I learn a little more on a daily basis. In retrospect, I was a little kid. I'm watching Popeye cartoons, and I saw what that can of spinach did for Popeye. And my thought was, wow, what if he had a second can? And then I also thought, well, if that makes him feel that way, why don't you just have some spinach first thing in the morning? And then if something happens, you can have the second can then. So I don't know where that led, but it, there's, there's some dots there that got connected. Um, seven and a half years ago, I got a dog for the first time. And, and uh, I read up and I wanted to make sure I did the right thing. And they said the most important thing about having a puppy is socialization. And I did everything that I was told to do. And, and as a result, my dog today gets along with everybody. Everybody gets along with my dog. He loves everybody. Everybody loves him. And why am I saying this? Because again, in retrospect, I guess I just wasn't properly socialized. You know, I had difficulties getting along with people. I always felt a little different. Everything was a little off. And then to make matters worse, I skipped the eighth grade. So now by the time I'm in high school, I'm a year and a half or so younger than everybody else. And my emotional growth was just stunted. And uh, so it was. And then I, uh, I went off to college. And there, you know, I, I tried to join a fraternity. And at first they, uh, they blackballed me or whatever it is. They eventually took me. But it was a recurring common feeling of just not fitting in. I came home for Thanksgiving. I don't know what it was. And uh, I got together with some friends who had made new friends in a new neighborhood. And we were at one of those open houses where generally there's about 100 people that crammed into some people's living room who were nice enough to leave for the weekend. And uh, 
I'm sitting there and I see this bag of red pills going around the room. And I said to my friend, Mark, what's that? And he said, well, just take one. You'll like it. And uh, so I did. And 20 minutes later, boy, was he right. Boy, was he right. All of a sudden, all my insecurities left me. All not fitting in. All I went from feeling less than to, aren't you glad I'm here? And uh, this was it. It was the missing piece in my life. And the next night there was another open house and, and I'm sitting there and this, this night they were a blue and red. And I said to Mark, what are those? He says, same as last night. And that started a routine that was going to last for 25 years where I was going to put something into my system just so I could feel normal uh, and to be comfortable in my own skin. The thought of not having something in, in me and having to deal with the reality or my perceived reality was just overwhelming I, and I didn't want to do it and uh, hey when you take these kind of things trouble will eventually come uh, actually I was arrested four times uh, four different drugs four different cities uh, and each time my father was there to bail me out he bailed me out. We would hire an attorney. The attorney would convince the judge it was my first time in trouble. The judge let me go and the case was expunged, or so I thought. And then the next time, case was expunged. So in my mind, it never happened because there were no consequences. And I was able to just go on. But I remember the first time we're driving home. Now, this was in New Jersey, and, and my father is giving me the kind of lecture you would expect. And I, I was, was not paying attention because I knew on my agenda, I had to get to the schoolyard where all the cool people were. And the really cool people were the ones who had been arrested. And I couldn't wait to get there and say, hey, yeah, I got busted. And, you know, so I thought that this was just the way things do it. And um, so it went. And I, let's see, I, you know, I went through all the drugs and, and when I ran out of drugs, I remember I was at studio 54 one night and, uh, I'm with my friend and he says, you can't walk around stoned on quaaludes like that, walking around stumbling. Everyone's going to know you're, you're on drugs. Do what I do. I drink Johnny Walker black and soda. And, uh, so that became my drink. Um, just a word about quaaludes before I get on with this. Uh, I discovered that men and women, well, me and women metabolize quaaludes differently. You see, if I took one 20 minutes later, I'd be numb and tingling. If a woman took a quaalude 20 minutes later, she would really, really like me. I mean, really, really like me. And it made, it made my social life easy. I didn't have to go through all of that, uh, social foreplay. You know, is take a pill 20 minutes later and we're done. But enough of that. So I started drinking and uh, drinking did the same thing. And, you know, one of the two, I've been around for a while and, and I never relapsed. I, uh, I believe a big part of that is I put off stopping for as long as I possibly could. 
And, and as a matter of fact, I never tried to stop. Why would I possibly try to stop as long as it was doing for me what I thought it was going to do? And, uh, you know, the reality of the situation never really played into it. The world was too loud and too big, and alcohol diminished the size and lowered the volume. And uh, I still was able to function to some degree. I, I had a job in Westbury. I was doing well. I got the fancy car. I decided to get a uh, to take a share house in the Hamptons, and that went okay. Except at the end of the summer, nobody wanted me back. They thought I drank too much. Actually, I thought they weren't drinking enough. And then a couple of years later, I found a group of people who were drinking just like me, or so I thought. My biggest secret when I was out there was that I was doing more than everybody else. When I was with you, I, I would be right with you. I'd be doing the same things you were doing and the same quantity. And as soon as you were gone and I was by myself, I took more. You know, when I was taking sleeping pills, I'd get home and I'd take two more just to make sure I'd have a good night's sleep. I'd go to the bar, I'd have five or six drinks with everybody and then go home and drink a bottle all by myself. So now I'm in the Hamptons and then if you've been in a share house, they have this unwritten rule in, in summer share houses that you don't get involved with people in your own house till ALD. And that means after Labor Day. Well, I think it was 19, I, I don't even remember the year, but uh, a woman joined the house and, and we got involved BMD. Uh, that's before Memorial Day. And it was one of those codependent, dysfunctional relationships that I, I don't know if you've ever had one of those, but it was one of those where we couldn't stay together and we couldn't stay apart. And the reason that we couldn't stay together was my drinking. You know, she would always say, that scotch, that damn scotch. One day, she wrote a letter to my mother. She, uh, she told on me. And she wrote a letter and she said to my mom, the reason that we can't stay together is because your son is an alcoholic. And um, God bless my mom. She knew exactly what to do. As soon as she got the letter, she called me up and she said, you know that woman, Cindy? She's crazy. So, you know, I, I bought into that. So I still continue to drink the scotch. Now, one night I was not expecting her over. Oh, previously to that, you know, after one of the fights, I, I made a point of throwing all the liquor in, I had in the house down the toilet. And she says, oh, I'm so proud of you. Well, she wouldn't have been so proud if she saw me hiding bottles in every nook and cranny so whatever room she was in i could be in a different room but one night i wasn't expecting her and i'm and i'm drinking i have the bottle of scotch with me and i'm actually drinking it in a glass with ice cubes and i'm halfway through it and i hear the keys in the door and she walked in and she sees me she subsequently said to me i would have preferred to have seen you with another woman but she felt so betrayed she says that scotch that damn scotch she stormed out and I knew I was about to do something that I was going to regret that I was putting off for as long as I could, but I knew I had no choice. And, and I switched to vodka. I, I, by the way, I found that vodka doesn't smell provided you drink by yourself, but nevertheless, then I started drinking vodka and the spiral started and it started getting worse and worse. And then, 
one morning I woke up and the alcohol was no longer able to do what I needed it to do. You know, previously, no matter what happened, it didn't matter. And now everything mattered. Everything was loud. Everything was big. What am I going to do? I, I started, I pulled out the yellow pages. Well, that dates me. And, um, I started with the A's and by the time I got to the ends, I got this Metaplex place. And she said to me, do you think you have a problem? And I said, yes. Well, would you like to come in? And I said, hold on, let me check my calendar. And I'm available in a month and a half. And she says, call me in a month and a half and we'll take care of you. And it was three days later, I called her back. And um, August 29th, 1992, I, uh, I went to Arms Acres. And, and I get there and I look around the room and I see people that look just like you, but you guys didn't look like that back then. And, and the thought that walked up to him and I said after me, I go, you're Lewis. He goes, yeah, who are you? And I told him and, and I said, listen, I got out of rehab recently. Does this stuff really work? And he said, um, I think so. I've been sober for uh, six years. So I knew this was not some stranger. This was somebody I knew and, and I knew and, and I believed him and I believed it could work for me. And then I, I lost the job in New Jersey. I moved back home with my parents. And then for whatever reason, I decided to go into the dry cleaning business. And uh, I'll tell you, when I first got sober, when I first saw the steps and I saw God, I was convinced I was not going to be able to get sober because uh, that was not part of my life. You know, there was, uh, there was just too much going on. You know, there was, my father didn't approve my neighbor. My father would point out the hypocrisy of religion and, um, it, it just didn't work. And I was confused cause I always thought it was the, uh, God of my, it was the God of religious upbringing, the God of my neighbor's understanding. I didn't get the part about God of my own understanding. And uh, so I saw a Catholic priest and he said, why don't you fake it till you make it? I said to him, I already heard that. You have anything else? He goes, well, what do you believe in? I said, I think it's fate. It's all fate. And he said, then why don't you use fate as your higher power? Okay. How do I argue with what I just told him? So I'm going along with this. So uh, I lost this job in New Jersey. I moved in with my parents. I decide to go into the dry cleaning business and I'm looking for the ideal place to open my dry cleaning store. And uh, I'm with that woman with that codependent dysfunctional relationship. And we're driving all over the place. And she's saying, you don't want to be a dry cleaner. You're going to work too hard, too many hours. What do I tell my friends? You're too smart. You should go back to school. You should be a doctor. You should be a lawyer. And I want to say, you should just shut the hell up. But I didn't have the nerve to do that. So instead I said a foxhole prayer to the God I didn't believe in. God, please, let there be a place so I don't have to hear this anymore. And I come around the turn, and there it was, a store for rent. And what gives me chills is when I tell you it was a liquor store that went out of business. Okay, this was my burning bush sight of God. This has nothing to do with anything I ever heard or read or understood previously. I think this was the God that they're talking about. You know, I believe if you're new and you have trouble with this higher power God concept, 
What worked for me in the beginning was simply the God we talk about in AA is just here to get you sober. After that, you can make him as big and, and bountiful as you want. And that's on you. And, and that kind of made it easier for me because this was my sight of God. So I, I went to, I, I found this store in Pound Ridge. I opened this dry cleaning business 25 years ago. It did well right from the beginning. I joined the Bedford Village Group there. And, um, you know, when you get sober in one location and move to another, you'll find that the new place, they do it wrong. And I really didn't care for the way they were doing it there. You know, they check in, you know, and they say, hello, my name is Tom. My sobriety date is August 29th, 1992. I just joined this group. I don't have a sponsor, but I had a good day. And, you know, every group, I would imagine this group, you got a lot of these guys. You know, the guy that came up to me afterwards says, you don't have a sponsor. You got to get a sponsor. This is the end. Okay, okay. And, you know, basically leave me alone. And the next meeting, he hits me again. The third meeting, he got me in the parking lot. And, and I was getting tired of this. So, you know, I saw this guy. His name was Tom, same as me. He looked like he'd leave me alone. So I asked him to be my sponsor. And things are going well. And then, uh, so I check in, I got a sponsor. So then this guy comes up to me and I said, that's great, you got a sponsor, so what step are you on? I figured, well, four is a good place to start. I'm on step four. So he says, oh, that's good. We're a step-oriented group, you know, the whole routine. And uh, I didn't know that Tom and this guy were friends. And he said to me one night, he said, listen, if you don't do your fourth step by the end of the month, you're going to have to find a new sponsor. And the thought of this guy chasing me all around the place was too much. So I sat down. You know, my reticence about doing a fourth step is why would I possibly want to look at everything that I drank over without drinking? I didn't want to look at it when I was drinking. I wanted to mute it all out. And here you're asking me without any substance in my body to take a look at these deep, dark things that are just, you know, Hey, listen, I'm a garden variety drunk. In retrospect, I have a garden variety fourth step, but you couldn't tell me that then. So I did the fourth step. I sat down with my sponsor. We did the fifth. I went through the steps and um, things were good. Hey, step one is my problem. Two is the solution. Step three, do I want to continue the way I was or uh, am I willing to uh, proceed and see what happens? Four and five, I got right with me. Six and seven, I get right with you, with God. Eight and nine, I get right with you. 10, 11, 12, keep me in the game. And as a result, today I have a life that I never, never could have imagined. You know, so I'm doing the deal. Uh, I'm through the steps. I know the literature. I'm sponsoring. Five years sober, I go on, uh, on a sober vacation. And yeah, I know it all. And I'm going to be with these other people. So the first thing they do is a sobriety countdown. And, and this was uh, almost 25 years ago. And in five years, I was in the minority. I still go on those vacations and I'm still in the minority. But everybody there was 10, 20, 30 years. And I realized there's much more to AA than I had experienced. You know, AA is bigger than my home group. And I met people on these trips that I am friends with today. And many of them are here tonight. Um, and we've watched each other grow and proceed in this program. And, and there have been good times. There have been bad times. You know, I was sober about eight years, nine years. And uh, there was this guy that I was trying to 12-step and uh, to no luck. And then one night, 
he calls me. I get a collect call from the Bridgeport House of Detention, and he gets on the line, and I knew he was desperate because he says to me, if you bail me out, I'll even let you sponsor me. And uh, so I called my, uh, my sponsor at the time, Jimmy, an ex-cop. So Jimmy and I went to this jailhouse, and, and I'll tell you, my senses were assaulted. You know, the, the smell, the sight. I didn't want to touch anything. You hear the, the clanging. I, I felt, we bail him out. I, was, I felt filthy. I had to go home and take a shower. And I did that. And as soon as I got out of the shower, the first thing I did is I called my father. And, and I got him on the phone and I said, you know, I never realized what I did to you all of those times. And I'm really sorry. You know, this never made it on my ninth step with him because, you know, it never occurred to me. You know, imagine my father bailing me out. This guy was just an acquaintance, barely a friend. And so I just couldn't imagine it. And I was so glad I was able to make that amends because shortly after that, about a year later, I'm in a meeting on the beach and all of a sudden I get a call from my sister that my father had a stroke. The first thing I did was I called my sponsor. I didn't have to think about it. I instinctively did it because I spoke to him every day and he met me and we drove to Long Island Jewish, no, North Shore Hospital. And uh, he stood next to me as I said goodbye to my dad. The next day, five people from my group showed up at the funeral. And the next day, 20 men from my home group showed up at my parents, my mother's house. And it was the AA Army showed up uh, to take care of me. You know, I'd heard about the AA Army, but here it was in real life. And uh, if you haven't experienced it yet, you will, hopefully not soon, but what a comforting, comforting thought and feeling it is. You know, so life goes on, life goes on. There was surgeries, there's, you know, life, there's life. Six years ago, I wake up in the middle of the night and uh, I go to the bathroom and then I wake up five more times in every 10 minutes and I figure maybe I should look and it turns out I'm hemorrhaging. So it's two o'clock in the morning. I don't think it's so bad. So I just get dressed and I drive myself to the hospital. As soon as I get there, I say to the people, I go, listen, I'm a recovering alcoholic, no narcotics. Uh, Cause I was taught to do that. And I say, I gotta go to the bathroom. And I passed out in the bathroom. They, they pried open the door and they say, listen, we need some information. Um, who is your emergency contact? It's three o'clock in the morning. I don't think it's so bad. I don't want to bother anyone. So I said, I don't have one. And this nurse behind me, she goes, oh, yeah, why don't you call your sponsor? So I called my sponsor and uh, he drove to my house and took care of my dog. I was in the hospital for about a week or 10 days. And he stayed at my house, he even stayed at my house two weeks after that to take care of me. until I finally threw him out. And um, after that, uh, so I'm in the hospital. I'm, I'm losing blood faster than they can put it in. And um, so they, they transferred the hospital because they wanted to give me an angiogram, but the angiogram machine broke. So now I'm in, they moved me down to Valhalla and uh, I'm freaking out. I don't like that. That's a teaching hospital. And uh, so they, they change shifts and the nurse comes in and she goes, friend of Bill's, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. And then I wake up in the ICU unit uh, I have 30 staples going down my chest. They removed my entire large intestine. And uh, 
the head of the ICU unit comes over to me and he says, listen, if you can be sober for over 20 years like you are, you're going to get through this too. And he hands me a 24-hour book. And, uh, oh, yeah, the doctor's name was Dr. Buddha. And then out of the blue, the guy I know from Sober Vacations, out of the blue, he, he sends me a text of a cartoon, and it says, everybody wants to be liked and respected except for Tom. He doesn't care. So that prompted me to call him, and I told him what was going on. And he said, I had something just like that. You're going to be okay. And again, it was that, you know, the doctors and the nurses, they get paid to tell you that stuff. But I knew Steve, and uh, I believed him. And it all got better, you know. Life goes on. You know, what Steve said to me, the magic words, is he said, the most important thing is that you continue to do what you love to do and be with the people who, who you love to be with. You know, so as I, am I here tonight? You know, I can look around and go, so this is what my life has become. I can't believe it. It's nothing like what I imagined. If you're new, just think, if AA can do all of this for me, what can do for you? See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. That's the great fact for us. Certainly been the great fact for me. This is the place where dreams come true. Dreams that I never even knew to have. So I'm going to close with this, and it's uh, from the preface of the big book. So if you're new, it says something like this. If you think you've ever done anything like I've done, or more importantly, if you think you've ever felt like I felt, or most importantly, if you think this program can work for you like it's working for me and everybody else, then you're in a really great place. But don't take my word for it. Stick around and find out for yourself. Thank you very much.